0: Great. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the third edition of the Landform Design Institute uh, podcast. And with us today is uh, Corinne Unger. Uh, Corinne is uh, with us from Brisbane in Australia, across the water. And I'm here in Calgary as we go through and each of us and along with you guys uh, working our way through uh, the pandemic that we're in the middle of. So welcome, Corinne.
1: Oh, thank you, Mike, and everyone,
0: the support team. Yeah, the uh, it's been a a, a great um, uh, deal of work behind the scenes with all the folks bringing this all together. So I really appreciate it. And uh, those uh, folks from West Hawk have have put together uh, these podcasts for us. And uh, being as this is our third one, we'll be be able to get it onto a, a platform. And very soon we'll be uh, we'll be naming this podcast as well. So thank you, Corinne, for for joining us for the third one. So you're you're gonna make us real now. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, thanks for inviting <laughs> me. I feel a bit special.
0: <laughs> no. Well, it's special because um, I've um, I followed you online for many years, and of course we run into each other uh, over the years. Um, and it amazes me how. How do you do everything that you do? You're so involved with so many different things from AOSIMM. You've testified uh, before Senate um, in the Senate Inquiry into Commonwealth responsibilities for mine rehabilitation. You're an expert witness. Um, you're uh, you've been elected to the board of the Chartered Professionals for AOSIMM, as I as I mentioned. Um, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, how how do you manage All of that and in addition to that in 2017 which I hope we'll get to more that you started and commenced your PhD at the University of Queensland Business School so how do you how do you do all that Corinne seriously Mm.
1: well um, thank you for um, taking interest in all of those things Um, they don't all happen at once so that's the first (laughs) thing they sort of happen in sequence and one evolves into another and so on. And and most recently the ISO committee to develop standards on mine closure and reclamation management, which, which, um, yeah, they just, they do sort of flow. So yes, uh, started. So how does it come about? Um, So I I guess generally uh, after a few years of doing something, you look for something else to do to build on what you've learned. And so that, that series of uh, progressions is usually prompted by a problem or an issue that you've bumped into along the way that you want to solve or, in my case, I want to understand it better Mm -hmm. and see if the knowledge that I've got can help to resolve it. Um, But the inaugural Community Environment Society of the AusIMM was kind of long overdue and I was their chair. But prior to that, uh, there'd been a a fair bit of uh, effort by a board a board chair who had set up the Sustainability Committee, which actually was the precursor. So it, um, it, a lot of the hard work was done then, and I was involved right from that very start. So um, there is this progression behind the scenes that you don't always see, um, and, and a lot of effort goes into setting up a new entity within a, and an established and fairly conservative organisation like the Ausimem, which is predominantly mining engineers metallurgists and um, geologists so um, yeah so that was just one example and then getting into the professional board of uh, chartered professionals was um, a progression where they're very short of environmental um, certified chartered professionals to start with and then having one that would be willing to go on the board and so Peter Waggett was probably fairly instrumental there in recruitment he would um, cast his net and drag people in, so <laughs> I got involved that way, um, but I was glad I did because I learned a whole heap through that process on how you uh, how you uh, develop such a program and establish it, and then it transitioned into a new program, and I was involved in that. Uh, it went from being a board to a, a different sort of committee, but it had a, a more structured um, approach, and yeah, would, but during that approach, um, during that, that time... You're always learning, so I've got to be always learning. That's really critical, but also contributing. So both of those things have to take place. Um, And I think the other critical thing is being independent. So I'm self-employed and had been since about 2004, uh, having worked for government and industry before that. So as an independent consultant, you do get um, drawn in on, um, like the New South Wales Audit Office that wanted to interrogate their financial assurance system or security bonds and so I was brought in on that in um, performance audit so the beauty of being independent is you do get um, contacted um, to do these things one of the things early on when I set up my own business I thought I'll set up a website and I thought I'd do that when I didn't have any work and I've never <laughs> done it <laughs> um, and and I did think at one stage I would do it because there's still a lot of resources that I would like to pull in to one place and I will do it one day but I did think I didn't actually have time to respond if people wrote so in the end I didn't but so in a way I'm a bit invisible and I'll pop up here and there but if anyone really wanted to understand I guess LinkedIn is one place but um, yeah I've been a bit slack on that front not not sort of joining the crowd and uh, setting up a website but it is something I think is important when you want people to focus on something
0: uh, to to bring those
1: resources to bear Mm.
0: yeah and I do see you you do post on on LinkedIn for sure Mm. but and you do a lot of uh of sharing of other uh groups and um uh facets of work that you're involved with um which I really like because it opens up uh well for me personally i'll speak for myself um only it opens me up to oh what about that and and because of your of the sharing so uh i think that that's important too as you're bringing awareness not only for yourself but but other aspects of 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 who you work with
1: Mm, yeah i think as individuals we can't do much without engaging others um there is a limit to how much one person can do
0: (laughs) i've discovered
1: (laughs) you get get tired (laughs)
0: So I first met you, um, uh, I think, in the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, on the Mount Morgan mine rehabilitation project. Mm. And um, I was just wondering, like we were, we were doing a bit of cover system and landform design work, and and you were you were managing that project and supported by um, a number of other people, like you know, uh, our mutual colleague uh, Tanya Lawrenson, But I was wondering. What's changed for you, if anything, since that project in terms of how you would look at that project? So not really asking for cognitive bias, but more so, what are the lessons learned from there that you could share? Or what what are the things that are different than that knowledge that you've gained since then with respect to that project?
1: Well, having left um, an active mind and deciding to work I initially had a year of uh, compliance-related regulatory work before there was uh, regulatory reform and that separated the agencies and that's when I deliberately chose to work in abandoned Mines and could see that Mount Morgan was in need of um, some structure and attention and project management and that's where I shifted my attention. So, over about five years, I focused on that project which was um, sort of born out of very little. There'd been a monitoring program... So um, what have I learned since then? Well, I think critically that project set me on a new course for about a decade or more, which was to dig deeper and deeper into the whole abandonment issue. So probably more, more important than what I did during that project was the fact that once I left, the whole thing collapsed. So that was when I realized how you had to have regulatory support and legal backup and various other things. So that project was born out of, Um, me being in the right place at the right time, but also having a really good regional director who was supportive of the project. He didn't know anything about the challenges, you know, how to solve them. I did, but he knew how the government worked. And together um, we were able to access funding and uh, make progress and did more than 50 projects over that time period to produce a plan for the site with 10 different scenarios, um, essentially five scenarios, but with and without reprocessing because there was a company interested in secondary mining at the time. And we wanted to include that all the way through because if there was any way of reducing costs, then we wanted to uh, include that. But the fact that, you know, the regional director moved to Brisbane, um, I had to relocate because my husband's job came to an end. He was a pilot in um, Rockhampton. Um, And... So I left before I wanted to but at the same time I had a succession plan and I had uh, others trained up like Tanya to take over and the government took a year to fill a position and obviously um, yeah, a whole lot of government-related challenges but also there was an orphan dams group who were dead keen on getting our money and so they were sort of undermining the project. So there was a whole lot of nasty stuff that happened right near the end that alerted me to the fact that abandoned mines just get kicked around and um, and not only, you know, they are abandoned once. Well, technically it wasn't abandoned. It was handed over legally at the time. The, the rules weren't that strict in 1990. So it wasn't a true abandoned mine, but a legacy site anyway. And that uh, government's abandon them, again, um, if, if there isn't a team who are willing to put their heart and soul into it um, because it's hard work to get attention to it. Uh, an asset, or <laughs> a liability in that way. Right. It was an asset in that it was on the Queensland Heritage Register. It was um, socially significant for that community who had grown up with it. Um, and it was very significant to the agricultural sector downstream who were impacted by asset mine drainage. So we had this dynamic. Um, and so when, when I saw governments abandon it... Um, after I left, you know, just nothing to hold it together apart from those individuals who kept trying their best to keep it together. Yeah. But eventually they had to get other jobs And uh, So one of the, you know, the valuable things was making the guys that were managing the water on site permanent positions. You know, they were all temporary. Everyone was temporary. Every June our job came to an end. So all of those things were, I was trying the whole time to make things a little bit more permanent and fixed.
0: So it's, it's technically not an abandoned site, but it, it could be representative of Many other abandoned sites in in Australia and around the world, and I wanted to get your your take on something. Is that so? A number of uh, maybe it's over uh, two years ago or so. So Ernst and Young, in their survey with the mining and metals sector, uh, spoke to social license as the number one risk facing the mining industry, and and at that year for the first time, mine closure was identified as a priority area as well. So I think those two things are—I mean—that's you, you, kind of sort of getting obvious, right? The social license to mine and the social license to operate and closure as being a, a priority. Is it? Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, it's the social license or the social acceptance, um, because license sometimes implies that it can be purchased um, mm, or bought. Like yeah, the oh, but that—that's um, Deanna Kemp, um, the researcher at CSRM, has written papers on that. So there is a. Um, a preference for being clear that it's about acceptance. Um, So we have EIA processes, you know, environmental impact assessment, environmental impact statements at the start. We have nothing for closure. I'm not sure it might be different in Canada, but but one way of relating what you were just saying to closure is that the same seriousness, (laughs) the same attention to closure should be given as we give to the EIA process. So there is this tendency to... Uh, have included at that start some conceptual understandings about how the site might be closed. But that continuity is lost unless there are regulatory milestones that pick up on it and unless there is a point in time or several points in time when multiple agencies have to get, it, have to get together to align their views or at least understand each other's perspectives, like the Environment Department, the Mines Department, the Water Resources, and so on, because otherwise you get to the end of the process and they're all fighting with each other. Um, The company thinks they've had approval because one agency has given them that approval, the Mines Department, for example. And um, it comes as a terrible shock. And this was one of the aspects that came out through the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry that was around the issue of the fire. So the fire was the stimulus for the inquiry. But in the process, they discovered that, oh, all of these pits want to have water. They want to have a pit lake. But nobody had ever looked at them in a cumulative sense. So they'd each been given sort of tacit approval because that concept was attached to their work plans. But it wasn't until the inquiry that they revealed that um, the water agency had never really been Fully engaged in that conversation. So, a classic case where the different agencies have different perspectives, and um, it all either unravels or those conflicts are revealed when it comes to closure. So, yeah, we, we, we need to have processes in place in, that are embedded in legislation. That because closure planning is such a continual and ongoing process, it could be um, you know intermittent, but it it needs to be become resolved during the life of the mine because you only start with broad concepts and and those concepts are vulnerable to changes of mine plan and so on. So we all know that the closure concepts and designs have to develop, but there's no legislative process to ensure that at the same time the regulatory agencies are having the same conversations and resolving their differences so right. that was, um, that's something that I've learned from being on the technical review board for the Victorian government in the past, and now I'm on the new Latrobe um, Valley Mine Rehabilitation um, Authority
0: Board. Do you find that, would it be um, conflicting legislation? Perhaps the intent of each one of those legislations are achievable in concert, but perhaps when it gets down to the detail of it, that you have this conflicting legislation so you mentioned Victoria um, I'm I'm am uh, I'm assuming that you, you your experience is that you run into a, a similar sort of thing if you're in Queensland or if you're in New South Wales uh, as well
1: oh it's very different so in Queensland the recent uh, regulatory reforms were headed up by Queensland Treasury and that mm-hmm. forced the agencies together and that was absolutely critical to this regulatory reform process we've just been through that brought in the mineral resources, um, the new financial um, assurance process uh, with bonds and so on, as well as including the progressive rehab and closure plan as a new concept. So that, that was critical because for years and years being in Queensland and reading all the various audit reports and, um, and public service um, inquiries into the effectiveness of various agencies, this had been highlighted that the two departments of environment and mines were not talking to each other around rehabilitation and closure matters. Despite that, and there were definitely internal people trying to bring that about, they still did not collaborate, integrate, even discuss their areas of conflict. So you had the mines department always wanting just to sustain mining to bring in royalties and rents and so on, so this is from 2000 when regulation left the Department of Mines and Energy and went to the Environment Department. But the EPA um, were then set on the environmental protection aspects. But around rehab and closure, rather than conflicts, you asked about conflicts, but rather than conflicts, they're just gaps. It's like the two roads don't ever meet and there's this huge hole in the middle. They haven't had that conversation. They don't even know what's important. It's all been geared towards the front end of approval and whatever is in the a regulatory ongoing process, which is mostly compliance audits, checking on water quality, checking on air, noise, dust. Nobody's checking on anything to do with rehab and closure apart from how many hectares have you done. So it can be quite
0: superficial. I like the way that you've put that rather than conflicts of gaps because I know that, that we have a similar sort of aspect in, 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 in other parts of the world that, we, that, uh, that I've worked in. Uh, Alberta is a good example, is that some tremendous legislation. But uh, gaps are are missing um, and I think that there's other jurisdictions in the world that are like that as well.
1: Yeah, I think until governments are faced with a problem they haven't they haven't foreseen it they predicted it so they haven't addressed it in legislation and there is that urgency imperative that community response and we've had a very strong community response to rehabilitation um, inadequacy since the downturn, most recent uh, boom and well, neither booms nor downturns uh, are good for rehab and closure when, when there's a boom it focuses on expansion and environmental approvals. So industry and governments are drawn towards that approval phase. You know, there's nobody there dedicated to closure, keeping their eye on closure. They need a closure um, team, uh, a rehab and closure team that only look at that. Otherwise, you get dragged wherever the industry and governments, you know, get dragged so and then there was a the downturn well it's hard to enforce all of these things because they're laying off people uh, there's job losses in the regions there's um, you know house prices are going down everything's you know catastrophic we we have these extreme uh, cycles so if you want to wait till it's steady it's never going to happen so you have to have these dedicated teams that are focused on these long-term issues otherwise um, the focus is always going to be taken off closure and rehab
0: I, I, I agree with you. There's this aspect, as I think you already mentioned to it, is that early on, the closure plan and any most aspects associated with closure and rehab are early on in that uh, planning or development of, of the mind site and the ore body. It's a, a one of compliance. And then as you move into starting to now you're going to face the reality of closure, Uh, now you're looking to optimize something and things that were decided upon a long time ago that were not updated as the mine plan was actually updated and the lawn was updated. Is that your experience?
1: Yeah. If it hasn't needed to be, then it won't be. Um, It's also about do progressive rehabilitation, but not actually setting any minimum um, standard for that. What does it mean? I mean, undertaking a detailed investigation to solve uh, an area of uncertainty is significant progress but if your measure is only how many hectares have you revegetated, then that's all you're going to get so that so it actually sends the wrong messages to to industry if government's just you know set up a gis um i mean the new south wales government have done this as an indicator it's one indicator mm-hmm. to show you know disturbance versus um rehab and so for coal mining that's okay but but you've got underground metalliferous mines you've got you know, historic, nationally heritage-listed underground metalliferous mines, their contribution to the above-ground waste uh, volume might be less than, you know, 5% of what was there from 100 years ago. And that's all they're interested in, progressive rehab. What about progressive planning towards turning it into a tourist site? Because it's already on the national heritage um, list. Uh, It's not going to be... It's in an arid zone, so it's not going to be covered in a forest. You've got to manage dust because of the metals involved. So even tailoring their legislation to to climatic zones, to
0: uh,
1: different land uses, just understanding the values of the site, it's not enough just to put a, a figure into their guidance that just says, oh, yeah, um, step through the same process as you would for progressive rehabilitation, but we'll put, um, you know, cultural heritage on it or something else. So, it's, so it, it just... It shows that there's not enough engagement across agencies to even um, understand what's required. And you've got to remember that even if you went to the cultural heritage people in New South Wales, they wouldn't necessarily know what's required for closure either. It sort of requires its own research project. It requires connecting with people who've got experience in that. And, that, and then as a consequence, I end up being a member of about five different associations from ICOMOS, which is the International Council on Monuments and Sites because of the heritage side and, and my interest in that area after working on Mount Morgan, you know, right through to um, yeah, Ozymem and other, and other organisations. So that, those variety of perspectives are what I, I'm trying to keep on top of the, um, the breadth but also having some depth to understand how it's applied. But wherever there's been a problem like that, like a site that's having to report on hectares of rehab and I've done the closure plan for them. I just see the nonsense of it. Yeah, so I, I want to understand more about it to try and resolve it and bring it to the attention of others that are in a position to change things.
0: And so would it be fair to say from a legislative perspective is that progressive closure, I mean it's a <laughs> it's a fantastic concept, but it's not really it's not really achieving its its um its intent. You know, one could also say from a, you know, from from the mining operator side, it's, you know, like why some would say, well, why isn't progressive closure and rehab happening? And people say, well, it's maybe it's not part of the, the key performance indicator, uh, a KPI for an operator. And I would also take a bit of a different look at that uh, or perspective on that. From my perspective, it's probably not being done because it's not part of the plan. Does that make sense?
1: I think there is a tendency for... You know, engineers and scientists, and I'm still a social scientist in training through my PhD, (laughs) but we don't really – everywhere I look. We're not – apart from safety and health that has had some social science attention, it's more in the psychology field, so it's slightly different. But these organisational aspects are studied in other industries and uh, are very well understood, but they just haven't been brought to – this problem, which is, you know, why I'm doing a PhD. So I do think there is a tendency for those that are traditionally tasked with dealing with closure, whether it's consultant as a landform design engineer or geomorphologist or plant ecologist or whatever your role is, it's sort of left in the hands of this group of which I'm a member, but it actually requires far more insight from a social science perspective that looks at those internal tensions and conflicts. It looks at how these issues are managed. And um, and while I can't share a lot about my PhD until it's published, it's it's about going into the organisation and observing and interviewing and so on, but different research methods and different theories and different perspectives to actually understand what's going on. Otherwise, we're sort of second-guessing it from the outside so I still see myself as being caught in the middle, but by the time I finish my PhD, I'll know what I've found. But it, it really, there is a lot there. Like there's all this common pooled resources. So how do these conflicts occur? And a great paper from the oil sands in you know northern Canada, mm-hmm. how industry collaborate on uh, water and tailings technical issues and how they progress as an industry. So. And I only found that the other day and it helped me to connect with uh, mining related matters. But this is in the organisational uh, social science literature. So anyway, I won't um, dive down that rabbit hole too far at the moment, <laughs> but uh, I, I do think we need to bring in those different disciplines to help solve the problem.
0: Well, I wonder if this uh, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about is along those lines. I'm wondering, um, is uh, in, from your perspective, what's the difference between closure and rehab and relinquishment? What can the industry do so that we're actually you know, having um, less abandoned minds, for, for example, or that we're actually perhaps striving for um, something? Like, I think in my mind, we're, we're striving for something more than closure. I know closure is really hard. and We haven't achieved it right as an industry quite yet. But, like, is it just closure? Is there something more there?
1: Depends on your experience, and it does depend on the legislations, because often they're defined in legislation. So they're highly variable. Um, and so we can't actually use them in a way that um, we, assume, we cannot assume that everyone meet, means the same thing when they refer to them. So I see um, closure as a very ambiguous term because uh, in uh, you know, leading practice guidance and so on, it's seen as a process that starts at the beginning. In another document, it's the actual when mining stops and you start doing rehab. In another document, it'll be relinquishment. So it's highly ambiguous, uh, and I think that's the challenge with all of those terms. I think relinquishment is um, is a bit clearer because it's legally defined as you know that handing back of uh, mining tenure or company being allowed to leave. But in terms of what the communities want, um, I think if we asked external stakeholders, they wouldn't really care what words you're using, so long as you left something that was, you know, safe, stable, and sustainable, and non-polluting. Like they, they want certain values. They want the land to be accessible. They want it to be, you know, depending on the stakeholder, of course, they might want it to be protected and um, and fenced out because of particular cultural values or whatever. But understanding what the stakeholders need, you just to remember, if this is a temporary land use and it has to be used for something else, then all of the planning has to be geared towards that use, and if you don't talk about land use, water use, downstream use, um, aesthetics, unless we talk in those terms, then we're all—we've all got different understandings of what we're aiming for. So that's probably the biggest challenge that um, when you're designing, like design life, what an ambiguous concept. Yet. In the past, I'm sure, from an engineering perspective, it's seen as being something quite finite. Oh, it's going to be designed for one in 100 years or one in 200 years or, you know, at range of mine, it had to be designed for 200, one in 200 years or have a 200-year um, design life but a 1,000-year structural life. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> I mean, that's why we you know, embarked on erosion you know, uh, slope trials and then there was rainfall simulation and... Modeling and so on, landform, landform evolution modeling in conjunction with the um, Environmental Research Institute of the supervising Scientists, that of that collaboration with the mining company. So all of these concepts, we can't ever assume they're absolute. And and how are they changing in a climate change context? You know, so they're fluid. Um, I think we I think we think we have more control over these things than we do, um, and that they're yeah. more clearly defined than they are.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more. Defining these terms and actually not assuming that they're subjective. Assuming that they're subjective is actually um, the approach to take. Um, And that kind of feeds into one of the, you know, we're we're here and we're 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 having a chat in respect of the Landform Design Institute. And I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but in The landform design's mission is to make landform design routine in the mining industry worldwide by 2030. Um, But landform design, just those two words right there, I think in different parts of the world and for different people in the industry, they can mean tremendously different um, things. And and that's one of the challenges that the Landform Design Institute is working on is, is defining like, what does a landform actually mean? And for example, when does a tailing storage facility become a landform? You know, that that sort of thing. So you can actually start to develop tools uh, about landform design. And I think that landform design in the context of my experience of working in Australia over the years is it's about their, you know, leading experts in the area of landform evolution and, and, and erosion and things like that. Whereas I think the Landform Design Institute is saying, well, we think it's actually much more than that. It's actually much more holistic. I'm just wondering what you thought about that mission and landform design routine in the mining industry worldwide by 2030.
1: So my first impression was, um, yes, related to those terms. I would say if you talk to a mining engineer today, they would say they're designing landforms. So they're designing um, pits. They're designing waste waste stockpiles, they're designing and um, and minerals processing people, you know, uh, specialists with geotech engineers are designing tailings dams. So they're designing these features and, yeah, if they're called landforms, yeah, so be it. So I can imagine a mining engineer saying, yeah, we're designing them. They're just designing them for a different purpose. Yeah. They're designing them for that short 20 years or that – um, 30 years or however long that operation is going to be going. I was a bit shocked when I gave a guest lecture to mining engineers, final year mining engineers at UQ, to find that they had had no um, landform design or rehabilitation closure exposure, so not even um, a session on it. So, And when I was brought into the final year course, I was in the last week, which was pretty much reflecting real life so i thought this is a great opportunity to um it was my only opportunity i was a guest lecturer i wasn't getting paid i just came across from at the time i was at the center for Mind Land rehab working part-time on abandoned mine matters but i was able to bring in all these examples from around the world you know from uh new guinea to yeah wherever i'd been uh of success and failure what it meant to design foreclosure and uh I just remember this student just indignant and telling the lecturer, because they're about to hand in their assignment, they've been designing a mine the whole semester, and they said, why didn't we have this in the first week? <laughs> <laughs> and that was just the best to hear that. That was just the best thing. If if nothing else was learnt, then I thought that was the message, that you can't go and retrofit a mine for good closure at the end. I mean, Clearly, whenever you're brought into a mine, whoever's involved with rehab, closure, design, whatever, you can always make things better than where they were heading. But if it's left, you know, still partway through, you've got what you've got and you've got to make the best of it. So you never have that amount of control that, that is needed right up front that even in situating a structure to get it in the right place and build the right foundation or whatever. You know, design tiling stamps are very, you know, dense tailings or were designed to relocate the tailings or putting the paste tailings back underground, whatever it is, have those thoughts, decisions, arguments early and resolve them and, and have all those illustrations that tell you, you're, otherwise you're managing this in perpetuity and what does that look like? That's really my first thought was, yeah, these mining engineers, as far as they know, because they don't know what they don't know, They're designing designing landforms. They'd they'd be saying, "Well, what the heck's this?" Well, we're designing the landform design network is about designing landforms for productive futures, for sustainable futures, for for life beyond the mine. And so that, to me, is the critical bit that needs to be. I, I think it is articulated in there, but it might be assumed to be understood by everyone who looks at this, which it may not be. So in terms of having that embedded, it's got to be embedded in mining engineering courses. It can't be an add-on. It can't be separate. So so I found how hard that was when the Mining Education Australia uh, course, they had an environmental course attached to it. And I was, through As I'm In, was involved in uh, reviewing it. And I said, why is this just an, a subject that, in fact, most universities was... Uh, an elective. You didn't even have to do it. So this is the mining engineering training in Australia. So I'm not speaking globally, I don't know what happens in, in elsewhere. But this socio environmental aspects of mining was an elective. And it didn't even, you know, closure might have been one, you know, one PowerPoint presentation in the whole. So we were the two of us that were involved, one was a geochemist and myself, we went into it needed to be embedded in every course, you know, to, to make sense to these students. When they're doing hard rock mine design, they had to have that unit on closure in there. They didn't have to have it in another course that they didn't have to have. You know what I mean? They didn't have yeah, to take.
0: totally. And I think that's part of the part of one of the, the facets that the Landform Design Institute is working on is actually working with universities to bring that content into uh, the specific dif- disciplines, as you're talking about, that, Uh, perhaps are missing it, or perhaps it's an elective and make it actually a a core part of the the requirements for for that undergraduate degree.
1: Definitely. Um, I also wondered if you have um, geomorphologists. I'm not sure. I know there's a strong geotechnical engineering focus. Um, That's very clear from this page. But then I wonder about all of the other elements and I'm sure those involved in the landform design institute have, have those connections but are they integral to the to the process and also then I get into the uh, stakeholder engagement aspect which is not as an add-on but in terms of agreeing on the land use before you start so and that, that of course does change through the life of the mind but how does that get in, integrated early on? How does that shape the design? How does it inform adjustments along the way and then how does it reflect itself in acceptance at the end um so that's that's another aspect it doesn't it doesn't come through uh strongly on the website yeah. but clearly starting with the the fundamentals of design of, of these landforms even agreeing on a design life like i don't even know how you do that but you either got to agree on a very long design life or Companies have to resign themselves to managing uh, in perpetuity, or handing over as part of an institutional control program with a bundle of money uh, you know, for residual risk. Yeah.
0: Well, I know for me, when with design life, I, I very often actually ask that question: Why mm. that? Why that design life? It, it, it can be challenging when. Well, that's what we did at Mindsight ABC, so mm. we're doing it here. And I'm well. I'm not quite sure that that's the best response right and mm. i think it's it's very site specific it depends on what's the returning land use as an example right i mean it has to wouldn't it right and mm. and and so it it begs those those that more of that integration and and bringing that conversation up front i mean i i would uh i mean i've never went about starting a mine um but i'm, I'm pretty sure that there's all sorts of consultation and um and work that's done with stakeholders around uh, um, environmental impact and benefit and, and and all of that facet that goes into the development of a mine. But we seem to lose that synergy of that sort of, of of need as we go into closure until we're actually at closure. And then all of a sudden now we, oh boy, we better get everyone involved here again. Whereas I think if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly is is perhaps all of that should continue on all throughout the life of the mine.
1: Yeah, and and uh, not every day of every week, but um, no, yeah. At at clearly, there's got to be clearly um, important stages when it's reviewed and, and maintained. So certainly the, um, I think it was Peter Whitbread Abbotat, who's based in Cornwall, England, who wrote a paper and. it described that ongoing consultation as progressive rehab for people like he was trying to use the language Mm -hmm. of of the biophysical scientists and engineers to explain the concept of that engagement process for closure so you know surely once a mine starts nobody's interested in closure um, except the closure um the the landform design people you know because you want to someone has to keep their eye on that so who is it well it's not the environmental superintendent because their role is to make sure the mine's in compliance so you've just got to, you've got to recognize that the the structures that we've set up over decades that run mines have uh take the focus off anything sort of long term uh, apart from production really once they get started um that's that's a generalization of course so so with Ranger mine of course every year we had to simulate closure so for me in that role where i coordinated that that was fantastic because everybody's attention went to this simulated closure. We had to update the trust fund every year. So at the end of February, we said the mine closes. We have a month to submit this plan. And we went through the motions of updating everything that we had, including the the research that um, had told us whether tailings could stay in the tailings dam or go back in the pit. But because we hadn't demonstrated that the environment would be no less well protected by leaving the tailings and the tailings down. We had to assume it went back in the pits, which they are now, or they have done. But at the time, there was a lot of research going on to look at alternatives. But this default position meant this reverse mining, this um, simulation was done. We had spreadsheets. We had all the costs of uh, equipment. It was all very accurate and up-to-date. And then we would look at this huge volume of water, how are we going to get rid of it? Uh, how are we going to treat it? How are we going to manage it? And that simple act of looking at how water would be managed was gone through every year with you know, also the dredging and of the tailings and all of those aspects. Had to, we had to get quotes from Holland on dredging machines, so on. So that had to be highly accurate because then the Australian government sent up an auditor um, or a quantity surveyor to audit it, so looking at the costs of everything. That was a wonderful exercise for putting closure and center and uh the mines department everyone everyone had to help with it so it was it was actually very good because it meant there was uppermost in conversation so there was no no way you could not think about it because every year we had this reminder and it made every every department think
0: about it it's fantastic i love that what a Mm. great exercise yeah Mm. so we're fast running out of time I, i had a few other um questions for you if you don't mind um one of the ones, I, before we leave, I just wanted to see if, if there is anything more that you could share, uh, a few more details, if it's possible, about your um, uh, the PhD. Um, I know you've gotten, you won a Queensland Resources Council, Queensland Government Coal Mine Site Rehabilitation, uh, um, uh, a postgraduate scholarship in 2017, and you're, at, you're going to the uh, University of Queensland's Business School. Is there anything more that you are able to share with that? I know you mentioned that you're not able to, to, to share a lot, but along the lines of what we spoke to um, so far?
1: So I set out to study residual risk, and it was in the process of being in the business school, studying social science, that I discovered that um, residual risk is not – is, is is the end result, and it is something that you can measure and quantify, but actually what I needed to study were the organising processes that created the residual risk, so whether that was a high or a low residual risk, you know, what was going on inside the organisation that led to that over a long period of time. So what we've been talking about is being something that's, you know, so I'm studying, in fact, risks that are slow-growing, difficult to see, that Potentially impact beyond the borders of the organisation, and can be catastrophic when a mine closes you know, prematurely or at the end of the mine life. But with this huge liability that it didn't didn't comprehend. So my focus really is on managing these risks, these slow growing risks. So it's been uh, challenging because they're not, you know, obvious risks. And, but a lot of the the uh, literature on risk management deals with crises, acute crises. There's, there's black swans, things we didn't predict. There's, um, there's a whole lot of uh, literature out there, but often assuming um, enterprise risk management systems or ISO risk management systems will, will, are the solution. So by just taking a different approach and saying, well, what do organisations do in reality? What are they actually doing to manage these um, slow-growing risks and how, how they detect them, how they contain them? That is really the focus of my thesis. So, you know, looking at extreme examples of failure and success and then going into an organisation as it's managing these issues. um, It's been – it's like putting on a new set of glasses and suddenly being able to see. It's, um, It's been wonderful and challenging, extremely challenging at the same time. You get this overwhelming volume of qualitative data and you have to form patterns and there's a systematic way of doing that. It's exactly where I think I've been leading all my life.
0: <laughs> well, it's incredible, Corinne. Obviously, you're aware, ambitious, but when you when you bring it all together, um, it's it's going to be amazing. That's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> really sorry. super cool, Corinne. So you you your one of your first papers was weed seeds, crocodile, and couch. Couch. In nineteen eight. Couch.
1: Yeah, that's that a grind.
0: 1980- and <laughs> coots, that's right. I think I've actually learned that from you before, and I messed it up <laughs> before too, in 1989. And how how different is that? Like, what, what was that paper about, and where was your head at in that part of your, your career and, and, and now?
1: So, I'd had four years in soil conservation before that. Um, and so, that was my first job in mining. And I'd been drawn to it from know, a holiday in Cape York and visiting the Weeper mine. So I'd been really excited to see and learn about the rehabilitation. And I applied for the first job that I saw in mine rehabilitation and happened to be at ERA, Ranger Mine. And mm-hmm. I remember being flown up for the interview and, um, and I think it rained all night. I think I dreamt I was drowning um, because... <laughs> but, but it was actually the noisy air conditioner in the, in the demountable that I was... And it was just an amazing site and i got back and thought well even if i don't get the job it was really interesting and i just was lucky i got the job but you know and i had 10 years there but that first that first part of my job was like a transition out of my old soil conservation uh, life of stabilizing land um, understanding soils um, knowing how critical vegetation is but also understanding the physical and chemical properties of soils to make sure that they stay where you put them rather than wash away. So that was in that very early stage. And uh, because we were in Kakadu National Park, there were restrictions on species. And I think one of the first things I learned was there was, you know, two species of (laughs) cooch. And (laughs) you could use one but not the other. You know, one was invasive and, you know, could only be used on golf courses at Greens, for example, where they were contained. And, you know, there was all this detail about what could and couldn't be grown there but but importantly we had this native ecosystem and we were going to re-establish it so my whole focus shifted to um working in a national park understanding the importance of native ecosystems and weed control and what what was a weed in that context crocodiles that would just turn up in ponds in the morning you go to work and there's one just sunning itself on a pipeline to a pontoon um so it was probably just about those first impressions of being in the top end of Australia in this really amazing environment at a uranium mine that was highly controversial right. on Aboriginal land. Um, yeah, in the news all the time. That was the thing that was overwhelming was the amount of media that attended to that mine because there was supposed to be three mines in the region, but there was only ever one. So it got all the tension.
0: Right. Mm. And so how – I mean I know I wanted to touch on 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 a few other things but you mentioned Peter Weggett and I know mm. I know Peter um, probably not nearly as well as you know him but he's a a person who's like what an am- amazing man so generous mm. with his time and mm. and have there other have there been other people like that in your career that have I'm not going to say mentored like maybe it's coach maybe it's mentor but sort of have influenced you to help you find oh, your your voice you yep. find your way
1: absolutely you know a female in the mining industry all so was heavy going if you don't have someone on your side <laughs> so yeah. um, definitely no peter mcnally was the uh was my boss um, alex armstrong at first and then he left and then uh, peter mcnally was the environment manager and he was just amazing because every year it wasn't like you had to wait for someone to die to get their job you know so there's sometimes this perception in public service that that's the case but it, in a mindset that's fairly nimble and with a great boss like peter your job grew every year like my job grew so every year you'd add on oh will look after the research program now and can you also do the annual tax return for r&d and can you also uh, and it just went and i just loved it everything he added was great because otherwise after a few years you get bored and you have to leave a job so that never happened in fact I think I only left because I'd had two babies by then, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and my husband's job as a pilot, that was probably the biggest challenge for, you know, getting somewhere that was compatible. But but even when Peter knew that there was going to be a, you know, a, a, a reduction in the price of uranium and he formed this environmental consulting group for within the North Group so that we can consult to other companies, it made us more resilient and all of us saved our jobs, you know, so or he saved our jobs, I should say when half of the workforce was cut because we had, he had sort of diversified us. So there was all these things going on and um, working in that consulting company, which was ERA environmental services early on in Darwin enabled, you know, got married, I could live in Darwin and consult to other companies. So we went from everywhere from North forest products in Tasmania because the company owned forests, which sounds bizarre, but anyway to Robe river iron ore and you know, just all of those companies within the group so it was great so I've had good mentors good bosses everywhere even in soil conservation a guy had been there for 15 years wonderful experience Um, Rockhampton this wonderful regional director Jim he was awesome yeah if you don't have that I think for anyone male female in any role you're always you're going to struggle if you haven't got somebody who's aligned or understands you and what you want to do Right, and he gave me, right. you know, Jim in Rockhampton gave me a lot of uh, a lot of rope, you know. I'd come from an active mine and I wanted to address this abandoned mine. And I had plans for all these projects and it all hung together. And he just said, off you go, you know. So returning to Peter Waggett, he's just been a constant all the way through, a very generous man with his time and his support. Yeah, just lovely people like that really make life better.
0: And I'm, and I'm sure you've, you've done the same for many, many people. I, in fact, I know that you have. What, do you, what would you say to, to young professionals whether they be female or male to, to go seek out and and, and search though those people that um, influence your have influenced your career in the in a similar kind of a way
1: yeah I don't know if I specifically sort them out if you know what I mean it's sort of incidental mm-hmm. but once once you've met them and you know them then you sort of hang on to them that's that's definitely a deliberate thing that you keep in touch with these people that you if they need something you support them and so on over time and you do keep in touch
0: i, I think that you the way that you had started um uh at the beginning of our chat here was you you spoke to through your career you've been open to learning and and always um learning as you go along and i think that's when i think of uh of you know a young professional looking for a a mentor is 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 just being open to it and then and then it's happening um just by the fact of being open to it is that it sounds like that was your experience. I know that's my experience as well.
1: Yeah, it's the two-way process. It's not all take, but you're also helping them to achieve whatever they need as well. So in, in terms in the workplace, you're doing your job and you're supporting them in whatever way you can, but they are also helping you when you get stuck. Um, but in terms of mentors that are outside of that workplace, then those connections, um are still a bit two-way because you – Like if I help someone and then they pop up later on working on a project, like it's just building connections the whole time. So Mm -hmm. I always feel like, you know, investment in other people is never never wasted simply because it's a small world and we all have to – everyone's doing their little bit and it does take all these little bits like the Landform Design Institute, the you know, the CRC um, Transitions in Mining Economies, whatever it might be, uh, at an individual scale, everyone's trying to do their bit. At a collective scale, there's these initiatives – and all of them are important to bring about improvements and change. You know, on their own, they're not enough. You know, together, you know, through our networks and whoever we can uh, connect with, we can bring about these small incremental improvements. I think.
0: Well, I know one of the things that I've always admired of you is that, um, and I'll maybe tell a tiny little story. Is that I, I asked my older brother, who's worked in the mining industry. Um, uh, like you and I all of his life. And I asked him, how do you keep having a job? Right. And he goes, I just, I just keep on asking questions. And I go, I said, well, that's, that seems pretty easy. He goes, no, 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 Mike, you have to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. And I know that every single time I've been involved with meetings with you, that's what it seems like you're able to provide to the to the team to the meeting is that you, you always seem to be able to 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 find the right questions that push the people around you in the right direction.
1: Thanks for that. That's interesting. I'd um, like to think I did. <laughs> but, absolutely. I distinctly yeah.
0: remember facilitating a risk workshop and um and and you were in that workshop with Rum Jungle and you you'd put your hand up and I go, okay, here comes another good question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That workshop was great because we had everyone present who was yes. needed. You know, yeah. I I, yeah. I still wish every project could be managed like that. And that facilitation process was difficult. So you did a great job.
0: Oh, thank you, Corinne. You're very kind. Thank you for all of your your time and contributing to our Landform Design Institute podcast, uh, Corinne. It's so much appreciated, and I. I, I just cannot wait to 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 see those first papers and that first paper that comes out from your from your PhD research. It's going to be amazing. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Mark, for your interest. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, you're welcome. Um, so with that, uh, thank you, Corinne, uh, from Brisbane, and uh, it's Mike O'Kane here in Calgary, um, and uh, we shall we'll talk soon. And I look forward to to seeing you again, Corinne.
1: Thank you, Mike. Take care.
0: Yeah, thank you. Bye for now.